as time went on after the sentencing, the agent invited me to breakfast and I just thanked him. And he said, yeah, we want to thank you too. You did a great job. And he slid this pile of papers over to me and he said, you should fill these out. And I looked at it, it's an application to be a special agent of the FBI. Welcome to The Lionhearted, a true crime podcast featuring stories of the brave badasses who spend their lives fighting child sexual abuse. Join me, your host and forensic interviewer, Andrea Harner, as we get up close and personal with these unforgettable stories. In this second of a special two-part interview spotlighting Jim Clementi, you'll hear how Jim went undercover with the FBI to make a case against the man who abused him and countless other young boys. You'll also hear how he overcame cancer that he got from helping at the World Trade Center after 9-11, among other truly movie-like experiences he's been through. I find that the most inspiring people are those that have been through enormous hardships and not only survived but have turned their stories into something bigger than themselves. Well, no one exemplifies this better than Jim Clementi. And in typical Clementi fashion, he tells his stories with equal parts passion and optimism, and I'm sure you will appreciate his engrossing storytelling and his deep knowledge and wisdom. Listeners, here's a trigger warning. This show will cover difficult topics, including child sexual abuse. Please take care when listening, and resources will be available in the show notes. Hi, Jim. How you doing, Andrew? Good. So, for our second episode... I'm grateful that you've agreed to share your story, your own personal story. No problem. Jim Clementi, you've told this story so many times because that's part of what you do because of how important it is. Mm. And you do it with such flair because... Do I? I yes, you do. Because but... you are such a storyteller. <laughs> All right. Well, I don't know where to begin. So should I start? <laughs> Let's start when you were a kid. Okay. Well, I, I had five brothers and sisters, American family. We were in New York, just a regular family. My parents were great and we had such a tight family. We were very Catholic, went to church every week, did all the sacraments and all that stuff, went to Catholic schools. Anyway, I had a pretty great childhood. I was the youngest kid in my class and Mm. I might've been a little bit of a nerd. (laughs) Nerds Uh, are cool now. Oh, cool. Yeah. Well, they weren't then. (laughs) And it was tough. But I asked for a telescope, Mm. a microscope, and an erector set. Those were things that I asked for for Christmas, not like a bicycle or a baseball mitt and stuff like that. I just found investigating stuff was so Mm. interesting to me. I wanted to be a detective when I grew Mm -hmm. up. And I just remember when I got to my sophomore year of high school and we were in biology class and I went up to my teacher one day and I said, oh, you know, when I was studying amoebas and paramecium with my microscope and she just said, what? (laughs) I said, well, it's kind of cool how they move around and this and that. And she was like, what, 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 who are you? So I was probably the only one that actually had a microscope at home. But to me, it was fascinating looking at little things and figuring out the tiniest little things that that were around that we're not even aware of unless we have a microscope. So anyway, yes, I was a nerd. And I remember one summer day, my two brothers were outside playing basketball with two or three of our friends and walking outside. I remember the screen door gate closing Mm -hmm. behind me. And I just remember looking up at the sun. It was a beautiful day and my friends and my family. And I just thought, I have an amazing life. I am a good kid and I'm going to go to heaven. And that was basically how naive and wholesome Mm. I was. Mm. And I was the kid on the class trips who always stayed with the chaperones and was polite and said, yes, please. And thank you. And held doors for people and things like that. That's who I was. And that changed a little later Mm. when I look at pictures of me from time I was 15 on, I started wearing big, dark, baggy clothes. I became very reclusive and there aren't many pictures of me actually smiling for a period of time. And I was a chemistry major and philosophy minor in college. And then once I got through this whole dyslexia thing, Mm. decided that I would go to law school. And I loved constitutional and constitutional criminal law. I thought that was fascinating. All these 
amazing stories and how the justice system interacted with them. I thought that was fascinating. So I went to law school and then became a prosecutor. And one day I got a call from my brother and he said, hey, now that you're a prosecutor, we should do something about the director of the camp we were at. We were kids. And I said, why? And he said, well, I just saw this movie, something about Amelia. And he said, we should go after the director. And I said, what are you talking about? And he said, one day when I was there, when nobody else was around, I went into his office. And in his closet, I found three paper bags filled with Polaroid pictures of him molesting boys. And I said, I thought I was the only one. And that was the first time that I told anybody in my family about it. And one of the reasons why was because after it happened to me, when I went back to school after the summer, I went to our spiritual guidance counselor, who was Father Frank Stinner. And the first thing out of my mouth was, we have to warn the boys. Mm. And I told him, and instead of doing that, he told me, say 10 Our Fathers and 10 Hail Marys and never speak of this again. And that was a horrific blow to me because it made me feel more guilty. It made me feel more isolated. It made me feel more responsible than I had when I walked in the door. And I listened to him. I didn't say anything about it, and I felt horrible about myself mm -hmm. as a result of it. So after this call with my brother, and because I was a prosecutor at the time, I went over to a friend of mine who I knew was prosecuting adult and I told him about what had happened to me and he called up the FBI NYPD Joint Sexual Exploitation of Children Task Force and uh, met with Al McDonald an FBI agent and Chris Montatino a detective in NYPD they came to me and they mm -hmm. said let's just sit down at a restaurant it was actually literally catty corner across the street from Fordham Law School where mm -hmm. I went and I lived right down the street, too. They wanted it to be more relaxing, which I was very happy about. They just didn't want it to be a sterile environment, mm -hmm. which was one of the things that I learned about doing interviews of this nature. Bringing somebody into a cold interview room is not conducive to opening up. I told them the story just generally, and they said, okay, tomorrow let's meet at the DA's office and we'll go through the whole thing. And then we did that, and then they started an investigation into Michael J. O'Hara, who was a teacher at Catholic schools. He was a coach. He was my basketball coach at the camp, and he was the director of the CYO camp. So they started this investigation, and as time went on, I was worried because I didn't want any of my colleagues to know what had happened to me. I just felt like they wouldn't feel like I'm a professional. I felt like damaged goods. It was rehashing all this stuff. It had been 10 years since I had been victimized, but it still was very raw and I hadn't been talking to anybody about it. And as the investigation progressed, they would give me some updates, not a lot of information, but they told me that O'Hara had been a teacher at 13 different Catholic schools over 23 years. And at every one of them, there was an allegation. He was confronted. He just didn't say anything, resigned, and walked away. And he walked right down the block or down the road a little bit and went to another Catholic school and started teaching there. And it went on and on and on. So they asked me if I would wear a wire and meet him and talked to him about it. And I said, no effing way. I'm not doing that. There's no way I'm going to sit down and have a civil conversation with this guy. So I literally refused to do it. And they said, all right, but we're interviewing kids at these schools and on his teams, and we're not getting anybody who's disclosing. So I said, well, you know, that's terrible, but keep trying. As time went on, now this is a year and a half almost into me being a prosecutor, and the case languished and and my boss came in and her name was Patricia Henry and she was great and she came in she had some papers in her hand she goes Jim you haven't filed your papers for admission to the bar and I said 
oh yeah, I forgot. Well, I hadn't forgotten, but it's a 25 page background questionnaire and you have to list among many other things, every place you ever lived. And I did not want to put the camp down because I didn't want them to go interview him and then him knowing that I became a lawyer and him knowing anything about me. So I was just putting it off. But now she said, if you don't get this done by the end of the month, you're going to lose your job because we had an 18 month buy. We could prosecute cases because we did the city prosecutor's office background, but the bar background was much more extensive. So I said, okay, that night I made up my mind. This is ridiculous. It's just stupid for me to still be thinking about this or worrying about this. And so I called in sick the next day and just filled out the 25 pages and you have to send it to your law school. They attach your law school transcripts and then they send it to the bar. So since I lived like six blocks away from my law school, I decided to walk it down there. I walk into the night registrar's office and who is sitting behind the desk at the night registrar's office but Michael J. O'Hara. And he looks at me and I freeze in place. Now, just imagine, I just convinced myself last night that I would never see this guy again, that it was actually just ridiculous for me to think about it and he's sitting right there i was like is this the twilight zone it just doesn't make any sense it in doesn't a city compute. of eight million people how is he the one person i know and i'm supposed uh, to hand yeah. the application to him the first thing out of his mouth was yeah i noticed you graduated from here a couple of years ago he's sitting right next to the alumni files <sighs> my worst nightmare so Part of me wanted to leap over the desk and strangle him, but I thought, you know, that might be an impediment to me being admitted to the bar. And the other part of me just wanted to die, just disappear. Luckily, the dean walked in, so I was able to turn to her and say, could you personally handle this? I'm going to get fired if yeah. I don't get this done right away. And I so wanted to write a note saying, he's a yeah. child molester. But I was like, I can't. And I walked out. And then he said, oh, yeah, and I'm sorry to hear about your mom dying. And that just burned me up because he's the reason why. After I was molested, my mother said, Jimmy, you were always such a happy kid. Why are you so sad? Why are you so glum? Why so many wrinkles in your face? Why? And I would push her away because I couldn't tell her. I just didn't know the words. I didn't know this happened to boys. I didn't know how to deal with this. I didn't know that this was a vile crime that happened to me and that I wasn't responsible. So all of that guilt and embarrassment and shame all was piled up on me. And because of him, that pushed me away from my mother and she passed away from cancer and it was never resolved. So, And I just have to jump in to say, as a mom, that's the part of your story that just nearly broke me. Hmm. And it highlights for me how much Child sexual abuse has such ripple, ripple effects, effects, right? Because mm -hmm. you all of a sudden have this secret that is keeping you and your mom yeah, apart. Well, and she's doing the best she can. You're doing the best you can. And I didn't have the language. Yeah, Nobody right. talked about it. That's why I'm so adamant about people talking right. about this. The good thing that happened in that moment when he said that was I got extremely angry. And so... I kind of smiled and I walked away and I walked outside and this was before cell phones. I picked up a payphone and I called the FBI and they said, I know where he is. Come and wire me up. They came, they wired me up. They gave me a little pep talk about what I should say. And I walked back in and I said, look, sorry about before, but can we talk outside? I need to talk to you about something. This was all scripted by them. And we went outside and he said, what is it? And I said, look, it's kind of difficult for me to talk about, but I've been trying to talk to you for a long time. And he goes, yeah, I've been flying under the radar. And I said, well, it's something that I can only talk to you about. Can we sit down and have a beer or something? He said, all right, Friday, da, 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 da. So we set it up. And then I had to go back and get wired again. See, it's that anger that I mm. love, Jim. Well, that's that what passion. triggered it. Yeah. Exactly. Where you said, I'm actually going to help take this yeah. guy down. Right. I met with him and I'll never forget. It was on Halloween and it was at this bar on Columbus. It's called the Emerald Inn. And as I'm walking there, now I have a, a recording device on and I have mics and I'm just very conscious of my footballs in the street as I'm walking there. And I remember seeing people in 
ghost and witch costumes. It was just so bizarre. And I walk into the bar and we sit in the back. We order beers. And he's like, so what did you want to talk to me about? I'm like, dude. And I'm nervous as hell because of what I'm actually doing and the role I'm playing. So I'm like, can I at least have like a little bit of a beer and give me a second? And he says to me, you never could stand on your own two feet. So what was he doing? He was immediately trying to reset that imbalance of power when I was a kid and he was the boss. He was the coach. He was the director. He was the adult. So I played with it. I'd use my nervous energy to just say that I was so nervous about this. Mm. What they had prepped me to do was say, look, these offenders are so starved for community. They know they're pariahs. They know that they are vile and nobody wants to be around them. If you say you accept him and you say you were wrong when you were a kid Mm. and you say you want to learn from him, which, of course, was the most disgusting thing in the world. They said, he'll fall for it. And I said, look, I'm telling you right now, he's not going to believe it. And they said, trust us. And I said, all right, I'll try. So he says to me, so this has to do with sex, doesn't it? And I was like, yeah. And he goes, and kids. And I was like, oh my God, how do you know? He just goes right there. Right. Goes right there. It's exactly what they had predicted. And I was like, I said, how did you know? He said, I told you, I'm the teacher. And I said, I'm really sorry. When I was a kid, I really didn't understand. You were just trying to teach me. And he said, yeah. And he goes, I have to tell you something. I said, what? And he goes, of all my boys, you're the last one that I expected to come back to me. And I was like, why? Inside saying, of yeah, course yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to come back to you. He goes, well, I hit you hard and I hit you again and again and again. And, you know, I wasn't so kind to you. That's how he mm-hmm. described it. And I had to sort of undo all that and just say, look, I was young and naive. I really didn't understand it. And anyway, he just starts talking. And he said, when I was 19, I volunteered for the night shift at the Queen's Home for Boys. And it was great because I was the only adult there and I had 37 boys and I had to make sure they took showers every night. And you can imagine I made sure they took showers every night. And, and you're just sitting there inspecting listening to them. This. And I'm sitting there oh. wanting to throw up. Anyway, it went on and on for an hour and 42 minutes. And he talked about dozens and dozens of boys. By he just wanted to sh- date and talk and shop name and share. And, and what he did. Yes. He <sighs> was exactly starved for community. Like right. the agent said, after a certain point, I just had to get out of there, and I told him I had to be somewhere. What ended up happening was that when I left, I went back up to my apartment. The agents came, and I think it was Detective Gelfand at this point who took the recording device off me, and I immediately ran into the bathroom and puked my guts up. It was just unbelievable that I had to sit there and talk to him. He mumbled a lot, and there was a lot of background noise, so I ended up having to transcribe all the tapes. Everything that he talked about was beyond the statute of limitations. He was very careful. And so I had to set it up to meet him again. Sorry, again. let me interrupt you for a second, because sure. I was curious about the statute of limitations. When you first went mm-hmm. to law enforcement and told them about this, what were they investigating? They yeah. knew that somebody who had bags of child pornography that he produced of hundreds uh, of boys that he sexually abused that he was, was still a preferential offender active. who was very Got active. Got it. So they were looking for other victims. I was simply their way in. I was Got what's it. called a cooperating witness, and that's the basis of what I was doing. So they told me I'd have to meet him again. And we set up a few phone calls and things like that. We talked back and forth a little bit, and then I went again. I think it was after Christmas, and I had to go to his house. This was difficult, really difficult. I was really worried about it, but I needed to make a case. One of the things that I was keeping my eye open for were anything at his house that might indicate the name or identity of a victim. And he talked to me about a championship team and a boy on that team who he sexually victimized. And I said, I had to go to the restroom and I went and I looked in his room and I saw on a cabinet there was a picture of a kid and let's say he was in a basketball uniform or a baseball uniform. I saw the number Mm. and it said champions on 
the bottom of the thing. So I thought, well, this might be him. So I told the agents that, and to the credit of Al McDonald, who was an amazing agent, he went back to all the schools and he said to the principals, look, is there any other person we haven't interviewed? And they found a guy who had the same number and they interviewed him and he denied anything happening. But this agent kept persisting and one principal said, there was this kid who got cut from the team, but he was the scorekeeper. So he interviewed that kid and that kid disclosed. And he said, one time when I was leaving O'Hara's house, I'm walking towards the sidewalk and there's another kid walking towards me from my class and he looks at me and his eyes go wide and then he just looked down at the sidewalk and he said, that kid never talked to me again at school. So I think it happened to him too. And that kid was the kid who had that number on his chest. So they went back to him again and said, look, we know. And he disclosed. So those two kids were the kids that we were able to charge him with. And the craziest thing happened. I'm in my office mm -hmm. as a prosecutor. This is now like 24 hours after they made the arrest. And I'm sitting there and this defense attorney sitting in my office, we're meeting about a case that I'm about to prosecute. And I get a phone call. I said, excuse me. I answer the phone call. I hang up the phone call. While I was there, he was flipping through a file and he goes, you never believed the case I just got. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, this guy is alleged to have sexually victimized all these kids. And I look at the file. It's O'Hara. He's representing O'Hara. And he's sitting in front of me and I'm thinking, this bad person is trying to influence me. And so I just say, excuse me, I get up. And before this, I totally respected this lawyer. I had to go to my boss and tell her everything in like three seconds. She comes in and she's on fire. You'd think I have fire, she had fire. She's like, what What the hell are you doing trying to bring that case? He's like, what, what are you talking about? He had no idea that I was the complaining witness. So... He said, literally, it just happened last night. I had no idea you had anything to do with it. You're not listed in any of the documents. I, there's no way I would have known that. And I believe him because the next day I get a call at home and it's O'Hara calling me and him saying, look, they assigned me an attorney, but can you help me get an attorney? So he certainly didn't know right. yet. Of so course. he wouldn't have been able to tell his lawyer. And I do believe that he was honest because in the end he made O'Hara plead guilty or he advised him to plead guilty mm. and he did. And then I was able to, at the sentencing, mm. actually go in and talk to the judge before mm. the sentencing. And the reason why I had to was because the night before I called the probation department just to find out what their recommendation was going mm -hmm. to be the next day at sentencing. And the woman told me our recommendation is probation. And I said, how did you come to that recommendation? And she said, oh, well, the defendant told us that that's what he was promised. And I was like, that's absolutely untrue. Did you talk to the prosecutor? Oh, my God. Anyway, I was in her office. I picked up her phone and I called the commissioner of probation for the city of New York. And I said, Mr. Payne. And I told him the whole thing. Mm -hmm. He used to be my boss and he knew about the case. And he said, you give her the phone and she either writes a resignation or she rewrites that report. So I give her the phone, she rewrites the report, but she had already told the judge and the judge had already told the defense attorney. So when I went to the judge the next day, he said, what? I can't believe this. And he said, all right, I'm going to have to talk to his lawyer and all this stuff. Anyway, he gave him a five-year split sentence, which meant he served about less than a year in jail and then four years probation. And you know what he did? This is how manipulative he is. He told all his friends and colleagues that he was going on a sabbatical to Europe. And he had a friend of his mail postcards from him to his family members and his friends in the United States so that they thought the entire year that he was in prison that he was actually in Europe. And that's the kind of person he is. But going back to the search warrant, right? So the day after I met him at his house, they executed a search warrant on his house. And they go in at three in the morning after mm -hmm. a few hours, they call me and they say, look, we've 
found files that reference you and a number of other boys, but no child pornography, nothing. And I'm like, what? I couldn't believe it. But then I found out many years later, October of 2001, right after 9-11, I spoke at John Jay. Mm -hmm. Love <laughs> uh, my alma mater. Yes, mm -hmm. a male survivor conference. And as I'm speaking, there's a guy in the front row who I see is just visibly upset and his wife is there with him. And she's like holding him and trying to keep him from getting up and leaving. And I was like, oh my God, what did I say? I made a mental note during the break, go right to him. So as soon as I broke, I went down mm -hmm. to him and I said, dude, did I say something mm -hmm. to upset you? And he looked at me and he said, O'Hara molested me too. Turns out he molested 11 of the 13 boys in his class. The first day of class, he handed out a survey. What are your favorite drinks, sports, magazines, ice cream, all this stuff. So it was a grooming tool. Mm -hmm. He probably threw away all the girls ones and mm -hmm. just went after the boys and said, oh, you like Sports Illustrated magazines? Come over to my house. I got some ones to right. show you. Oh, you like soccer? I'm actually a soccer coach. I could train you. Oh, you like math? I'm a great math teacher. That's how he meticulously went through each of the boys in that class. As I got to know this guy, we started a group with some of the other survivors from mm -hmm. the school and we did it by phone. But he told me that one day, he had gotten a call from O'Hara, frantic. And he said, you got to come over here and help me. And he went over there around midnight. And he said that one of the fathers of one of the boys he molested came to his house, stuck a gun in his mouth and said, if you're still here within 72 hours, they'll never find your body. And so O'Hara had this kid who was now maybe 17 years old, carry all this child pornography into the woods behind his house and burn it in a bonfire. And we did the search at three in the morning at the same house. And it was just this unfortunate confluence of events that because of that, I mean, if we had gotten all that child pornography, he could have had a thousand counts of right. production of child pornography and he would have gone away for the entire rest of his life. Right. But because of that, he didn't. And it was really, really disappointing. We were like, maybe he put it in a locker at work, but we didn't know. But then I found out. It was good at least to know. So as time went on, after the sentencing, the agent invited me to breakfast. And I just thanked him. And he said, yeah, we want to thank you too. You did a great job. And he slid this pile of papers over to me and he said, you should fill these out. And I looked at it. It's an application to be a special agent of the FBI. And I said, wow, but would they even take me since I was a victim? And he goes, come on. Yes, millions of people are victims of crime, and you did a great job for us. You're a lawyer. You right. helped us with the transcripts. You went undercover for us. <laughs> yes, we'd love to have you. And I was like, wow, but I don't know. And he goes, FBI agents are just federal detectives. And that was it. The light went off my head. Really? You became a detective. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, this is great. So, and then one other amazing thing happened, and that was while I was in the FBI Academy a year later, Al McDonald got his office of preference. Now, in the FBI, you pick offices where you want to go to retire, basically. Mm. And so he picked Boston, which is where his family's from. So he got transferred to Boston, and they put me on the squad that had just finished investigating my case. I can't tell you how many thousands of hours I agonized during the pendency of this investigation and prosecution that my colleagues would find out what was happening. And now I'm with the people that just finished investigating my case. It's all out there. I didn't have to worry about it anymore. It was like unbelievable burden lifted off my shoulders. I just became you know, lemonade out of lemons kind of thing. And I just became much more relaxed about the whole topic. And then, of course, during the course of my work there, I realized I could help these kids. I knew how to talk to them. I knew what they were going through. I could get people who were victimized to open up. And eventually through Joe Gelfand, I learned how to interview the offenders as well. And I got pretty good at it, so much so that years later, they would hire me in the behavioral analysis unit to become an expert witness in that field. So uh, I spent the last 12 years of my bureau career as an expert in the behavioral analysis unit doing 
profiling. I just have no words. I mean, <laughs> you couldn't have scripted her story. I know. It's crazy. I right? would not have expected this to happen. But again, I was extremely fortunate to have had this experience. Now, we started this conversation with Stephen Mills, and I met him after he wrote his book, and I read mm -hmm. his book, and I found the hundreds of parallel life experiences between his book and my book. I discovered that he went to the exact same FBI, NYPD, Joint Sexual Exploitation of Children Task Force while I was in the FBI Academy. And so we were ships passing in the night. And unfortunately, because the offender in his case had now moved to Pennsylvania, the FBI in New York transferred the case to Pennsylvania and agents there dealt with the case. And unfortunately, the, quote, resolution that they came to, which was letting the organization that he worked for quietly approach him and get rid of him. Eventually, I think it was like months later that he actually left. And they did nothing. Even though Stephen had done all of this investigation, had affidavits and recordings of the offender, just like I did, he had... By himself, by himself without, without the FBI, it, exactly. which is a hundred yeah. times more amazing than what I did. He put this case together and this imbecile allowed that to happen. And that is indicative of what people were doing and saying and not saying at the time. It's like it's easier to just brush mm -hmm. it under the rug. Mm -hmm. It's easier to let it just go away. This is how O'Hara was able to offend against hundreds of boys over the course of decades, Catholic school after Catholic school after team after CYO camp, everything was done to minimize the chances of this getting out and tarnishing the brand of an organization versus protecting hundreds of children. It's and, shameful. Yeah, it is. It is. You said, I thought I was the only one. Mm. That is such a common refrain, isn't it? And Stephen said the exact same thing when he realized, oh, it's happening to someone else. And that's when he thought, I got to do something gotta about do something. this. Yeah, yeah that's exactly you know? what happened to me. Yeah, Because we were victimized, our self-image was damaged mm -hmm. and we felt we weren't worthy. And we found uh, in the research that we did in the behavioral mm -hmm. analysis unit that many times, that is the impetus or the trigger for mm. somebody to come forward. Generally, males especially will wait 20 or 30 years to come forward. But in situations in which a younger sibling or another friend is being victimized or about to be victimized, many times they will come forward to protect that person, mm. not even thinking that they're worth it. Mm. It's insidious, horrible, and it's so undeserved. I mean... Anybody out there who's listening who was victimized, it's not your fault. I mean, and you're this worth is the whole thing. speaking up about. Absolutely. The justice system will respond. And if they don't respond, give me a call and I'll make them respond. See, that's why I'm <laughs> Team Clemente all the way. You always emphasize the importance of language in a place where you could have said my abuser. You said the offender who did this. Right. Tell me more about that. Well, that's important because yeah. that person has no right to be mm -hmm. part of your life. You can excise that. Mm -hmm. You have to start realizing that you were not part of this mm -hmm. person. That person is not part of you. That person committed crimes against you. And that person should be put in that category mm -hmm. and you should separate yourself from that mm -hmm. connection mm -hmm. because that person has no right to that connection with you. They mm -hmm. violated your rights. They did not gain rights from it. So it's really important psychologically to re-empower yourself. You can live your life and divorce that person from your life. And I will say this. Because one time I was speaking up in Canada with Sheldon Kennedy. He was a yeah, the hockey. hockey player, yeah. right? And afterwards, somebody in the crowd asked, have you forgiven the offender? Mm. And I literally said, I never thought about it because he never asked me to. And they said, it's not for him, it's for you. And I said, you know what? All right, I forgive him. 
it was like a weight lifted off my shoulders. I was like, let God figure that out. I don't have to worry about it. You're not carrying this anger right. and this hatred and this negativity with you. It was just like, let go of it. And I did. And it really was helpful. I'm not saying everybody can do that. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying everybody deserves to be forgiven. What I'm saying is, at least in my case, it yeah. really did help. It was totally unexpected. In telling your story in the past, you said that when you accepted that assignment with the FBI, after you asked them, would you really take me even as a victim? You became a survivor. Yeah, that's true. And so this terminology is incredibly important because it is a process. Mm -hmm. doesn't just happen, right? By the time I got to that point, having that conversation and became an FBI agent, the different things that I went through, man, I'll be honest. I mean, I wanted to end my life. I didn't think I was worth it. I was sad. I was down. I was depressed. I was convinced that I would never have a life. And part of that, I have to say, was hearing so many times people talk about sexually victimized, destroyed lives, destroyed souls, killed this mm -hmm. child's life. You internalize that. Yeah, you yeah. internalize it. And so I had a lot of rough times with it. But the process of having to face him, having to sit there with him, I tell you one thing that it did to me was it made me realize this is not some monster. This is not somebody who's evil and powerful over me. This is a pathetic little man who yeah. did horrible things to children. He's a bully and I'm not a kid anymore. And to be able to stand up and face him in a court of law and to walk out and slam the door in his face, that was a big move and that helped a lot. The fact that I had to deal with it alone for so many years, that's what sucks. And that's why I want to make sure that I'm available to people who don't have somebody to talk to or didn't get to experience this kind of flipping the script on him to go after him and at least get him locked up for some period of time. That's why I feel so close with Stephen Mills. I, I yeah. mean, he is like my brother and we share a lot of experiences. Unfortunately, he didn't get to to see justice in the criminal justice system. But he did get to confront the guy who molested mm -hmm. him. And I think it's incredibly important. Jim, let's talk about... We have more to talk oh, about? Oh, we so do. <laughs> Super light things, ready? Okay. Like your health struggles, mm. which are another insane part of your story. But again, end with resilience. So on 9-11, I was actually teaching a class at the FBI Academy. It was a train-the-trainer. We were training agents to do child sexual victimization mm. training so that, that we could force multiply. Mm. And my sister texted me. Her husband worked across the street from the World Trade Center. She said a plane had hit the Trade Center. And while I was on the phone with her, I looked at the monitor and the other plane hit. And I went into my classroom and told everyone. And I knew that actually the bomb squads, mm. all of them were in a training in a classroom right next door. So I went in there and told them. They thought it was a training exercise. And I said, no. And then all their pagers started going off. The one FBI agent who was killed that day is Lenny Hatton, who was the bomb squad guy they left behind in the office in case something happened. Anyway, I got in the car and drove up there. I didn't get there till about five in the morning because of all the crazy traffic. Mm. But I spent five days on that pile and digging through the debris and trying to find survivors. I didn't find any. But two hours into it, our air filters were clogged and we couldn't breathe through them. We had to take off our masks and we we're breathing in all sorts of horrible stuff. I mean, mm -hmm. burning jet fuel, plastics, and everything you can think of, asbestos. Everything was burning for weeks there in 2004. I got cancer, lymphoma. And when I got it, there were already eight other FBI agents and about 80 cops and firemen who had it. I didn't know all this at the time, but right. I found this out later. And I was fortunate enough to get into Johns Hopkins into a study that was actually monitoring the progress while you were going through chemo. And the chemo wasn't working, so they intervene with a study that I was in. So it was a, an experimental, mm, yeah, oh. autologous stem cell transplant. So they took out my own stem cells, tried to clean them up and only give me the good ones back. 
And then they basically kill you with chemo. They give you 10 times the lethal dose. They kill all of your bone marrow and all of your blood because it's a blood cancer lymphoma. In fact, it's white blood cell cancer, which white blood cells are the thing that that fights cancer. So anyway, it was a debilitating process, but I got through it. And part of the way I got through it was that I met this woman on the same day that I was told that I had to have a bone marrow transplant, I see this woman in the waiting room and she looked like she was having a bad day and I just went over and sat and talked to her. And it turns out she was diagnosed with lymphoma on the same day in Europe and we ended up having bone marrow transplants on the same day in Johns Hopkins. And we just helped each other. We walked together a mile every day around the hallways. I counted mm-hmm. the one foot square, so 5,280 squares is a mile. So it was 14 and a half laps around the floor, and we did it every day. But anyway, just looking at her, and this Mm -hmm. is why it's really important, looking at her and saying, okay, she's able to get up and do this, then I can, you know, and Mm -hmm. we would help each other through it. So I got through that, and I was doing pretty well. It took me like six months before I could really get back to work, and then I would meet Mandy Patinkin in that six months and started working with criminal minds at that time. And then my doctor said it's really a good idea that I try to find something less stressful. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Maybe postal service. Or... Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, the air traffic control. Oh, right, yeah. But anyway, so the thing is that, like I said, always respected writers, never really thought I would be able to do it, mm-hmm. but they gave me an opportunity on criminal minds and I loved it. And so after I hit the five-year mark, which is supposed to be the benchmark for survival. It was also my first year of eligibility to retire. So I retired and I came out to California to shoot an episode of Criminal Minds that I had written and I never went back. But 10 months to the day after I retired, I was playing tennis with my brother and my nephew in Irvine, California. And afterwards I was really tired and I said to my nephew, man, you really ran me into the ground, you know? I get into my car and it's just too hot. So I roll down the windows and sit in the shade. And maybe 10 minutes later, my brother happened to go by. He was just going to a store and he saw me. And he said, what are you still doing here? And I said, I don't feel that good. And he said, get in the car. And he drove me to the ER. He said something about the way I sounded and the way I looked. We went six blocks. Before he even parked, I got out and walked into the ER. I said, I need a stretcher. She said, well, you're going to have to fill out some paperwork. And I hit the floor cardiac arrest. I had a widowmaker heart attack, left anterior descending, 100% blocked. And it dragged me into the ER. And a lot of this I only know because my brother witnessed it. Anyway, they worked on me quite a while. And I woke up two and a half days later. And I said, all right, get some of these wires out of me because I got to walk. And they're like, you can't walk. This is cardiac intensive care. And I said, yeah, see if you can keep up with me. So they said, we're calling your doctor. I said, good, call my doctor. (laughs) Anyway, he came and he tested my my heart function. He said, wow, yesterday it was 23. Today it's 45. You're doing great. Yeah, go ahead, walk. And then he came back the next day and he said, all right, I'm going to let you go home. Like four days after I had this massive heart attack. And so the next day I had to go to his office. They did a stress echo. And he said, your heart function is 64%. And I said, oh man, I was feeling so good. I thought it was going to be like 80 or 90 mm-hmm. And he said, optimal for humans is 65. So you're doing pretty damn good. And I was like, wow. And so then I went back to the hospital and I threw a little pizza party for the nurses. And then I went out to to lunch with with the doctor because he wasn't at work that day. And he met me and we sat down at a table and he said, wow, it's pretty amazing sitting here talking to you. And I said, I feel the same way. He said, you don't understand. I could have called you dead at 28 minutes. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, if I can't get you back into rhythm in 28 minutes, I say, Mm -hmm. time of death. I said, what? (laughs) He said, yeah, but you were fighting me so hard at the beginning. I knew you were strong, so I figured it was worth it. And I said, why was I fighting you? He goes, when I was intubating you. I said, oh, look, I had cancer and I had a lymph node that had blown up like a tumor and it was crushing my trachea. So my trachea looks like a crescent moon now instead of a regular trachea and I said, so if you were putting an adult tube in me, it would have been cutting into my throat, and that's probably why I was fighting you. And he goes, well, then cancer saved your life. And I was like, wow. Oh, my God. It just seems like your life is filled with... Insanity? Yes, insanity and miraculous moments. And 
Partly, I think it's you being open to the world and recognizing how much you believe, need people yes, and connection. I do believe that most people are blind to yeah. millions of potential coincidences and meetings and yeah. things like that. So I do try to meet everybody I, I can, and I do appreciate life so much more because I know they might not be here tomorrow and it might not be here in five minutes. So yep. you're, we're lucky to get whatever we can. And I think the most rewarding thing in all of life is mm. human interactions yep. and puppies. Like, I mean, Your exactly. puppies are wonderful. Thank yeah. you. So on that note, your resilience after everything you've been through from childhood through your career, but also all that you saw during your career, terrible things people have done to each other, right? Yeah, I would say I've unfortunately been privy to the worst things that yeah. humans do to one another. Yeah. And yet... You are optimistic. Mm. At the end of the day, you really believe that the world is more good than bad. Mm. Well. And that there's hope. Yeah, definitely. Well, hope is what gets you through all the bad stuff that is semi-inevitable in life. Somebody explained it this way, neurologically, that your brain will take whatever you're thinking and look for indicators that correspond and reinforce that. So if you say life is terrible, life is horrible, then your brain's going to pick out the things and your brain can be incredibly selective. Yep. Your brain is going to be th pick out the bad things. But if you're like, hey, I am lucky to be here. Look at nature. Look at the people around me. I, I'm having mm -hmm. fun. Those are interesting people. I don't, I just don't know them. I'm going to go and talk to them break the ice, talk to people, find, you're going to find amazing things. If you do that, you set your brain in motion to look for the good things in people, to look for the good things in life, to look for connections and interactions and positivity. That is actually an amazing thing. That's something your brain naturally does. I yeah. heard recently when you fall in love with somebody and then they mm -hmm. break your heart and mm -hmm. you think, I'm never going to love again. Well, you were the one that loved. They didn't make you love. They didn't allow you to love. They were the person you shared that love with. You have that capacity mm. and you didn't lose it. So you right. can do it again. And those kinds of things, that's what helps keep me going. It's a tough thing sometimes because there are a lot of bad things that I saw, a lot of things that I've been through. Mm -hmm. man. But I will always say that I hear somebody else's story and I yeah. think what I went through was nothing. And we're meaning-making creatures. Mm. And so whatever worldview we put out there, we get proof for yeah. it. And we're creating deeper and deeper neural pathways as we're doing it. That's so why not be Make them positive? positive? <laughs> right. And people have this idea that your brain is like a videographer, right? And it's just taking actual images of what's going on. But actually, it's looking for what it expects. Mm -hmm. And if you tell it to expect bad, that's what you're going to see. I want to end on two things. I know that you're a fan of comedy. And laughing. I am. I don't know if you've heard this quote. I think it's a Japanese proverb. Time spent laughing is time spent with the gods. Oh, really? Yeah. I haven't heard that. I but love it. I'm going to tell my friend Orny Adam yeah. that I've been spending time with gods because he makes me laugh. <laughs> oh, it's, it's just, it's so good. One of my friends gave me the Monty Python movies and the Pink Panther movies. And I watched one every day through my recovery from cancer. And... They just make me laugh. But yeah, laughter is a wonderful thing and we need more of it in our lives. One of the conversations we had over the years, looking back now, it seems naive, but sweet. I said, I want to start a podcast <laughs> about um, forensic interviewing. And my colleague and friend, Monica, she and I want to talk about all the cases of kids that we interview and see. And then people will know that nothing gets prosecuted and I'm outraged. And you said, Andrea, I hear you, but you and I are not like normal people. And we can listen to these stories and know that they end up with no happy ending. Mm. And we can hear this stuff over and over for whatever reason. But most people need hope. Mm. You need to end with some hope, some inspiration. Right, which is why I think Criminal Minds was so yeah, successful. Absolutely. Because we were talking about serial offenders and we always, no matter how dark it got, yeah. we always saved somebody in yeah. the end. And I think that was the silver lining. And it really helped me reframe, or what do you call it? Reverse engineer. Reverse engineer. 
I want people to learn this. So I need to entertain them. Stories are what connect us. Oh, okay. And that's how the whole Lionhearted podcast started. Well, here you go. And I remember when you told me, yeah, I did it. And I was like, great. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm very honored to be a guest on Lionhearted. And I can't say enough how much of a hero, Shiro, you are because you have not only embraced the learning but the educating part mm-hmm. of it is that you're spreading it to people and every person that we tell is yeah. then another advocate and another warrior to yeah. fight this and to prevent it. I want prevention. It's just so hard yeah. in this system to get justice. So let's just not let it happen in the beginning. On that note, Jim Clemente, what a total honor. <laughs> it was great talking to you and being here and it, it's always great seeing you. Aww. And yeah. So more laughing. Yes. And more educating. And more hope. Yeah, exactly. It's <laughs> they kind all of it's work all, together. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> Thank, Thank you, you so, much. so much, Jim. Take care. All right. Bye. Bye. As I mentioned in my interview with Jim, I was inspired to make the Lionhearted podcast because of him. When it comes to talking about the terrible subject of child sexual abuse, Jim has taught me to lean into hope and optimism. So it's apt that he was our final guest of this season, and I'm incredibly grateful to him as he's a true inspiration, not just to me, but to so many others. If you haven't yet heard the first part of Jim's story, which is episode nine of this season, you should, and the link is in the show notes. Thank you so much for joining us for this first season of The Lionhearted. We hope you are entertained, informed, and inspired along the way. The Lionhearted Podcast is produced by Amanda Kelso and me, Andrea Harner. Special thanks goes to Kevin Tossi for editing, and of course to our guest, Jim Clementi. Follow us at The Lionhearted Podcast on all socials and subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please share it with a few friends and please leave us a good review as that helps spread the word. Thank you so much for listening.